0: What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back. Today's episode is going to be brought to you by our premier sponsor, our title sponsor. Who is that? Well, it is none other than Mystery Ranch built for the mission. And if you guys haven't been rocking a Mystery Ranch pack for your fire career at all, well, your uh, back is probably going to be. Well, in bad shape, but they make arguably the most comfortable, most well-made, most overbuilt Fireline packs out there. But in addition to this, they make a ton of other load-bearing essentials. So if you guys want to go peel a trophy elk or deer off the hill, they make a solution for that. If you guys want to go backpacking across Europe, they make a solution for that. If you guys want to go travel around and just have a little day bag to throw your civvy clothes in, well, they've got a solution to that. Hell, they even make briefcases. So if you guys need to make a crew boss kit, They've got you covered. In addition to this and all the other stuff that they make, well, they are giving back to the community. How, you might ask? Well, they are starting the 1039 scholarship program, which is coming down the pipeline here pretty soon. I'm pretty stoked about that. But if you guys are a temporary seasonal employee, well, You might have an opportunity to get a scholarship to go back to school and further your career and further your education. I am stoked about that. Another thing that I'm stoked about is working with them on the Backbone series. In fact, I'm going up there this week to go work with them on that particular thing. So, and basically what that's going to do is going to tell the story of the 1039 seasonal employee and, well, permanence, overhead, everything going to tell the story of wildland firefighting here in North America. Some of the problems that we face, some of the issues that uh, we have to deal with out in the field. And I'm stoked. I am absolutely 100% unequivocally stoked to be working with them on this project. So look for that coming down the line. But if you guys want to find out more, go over to www.mysteryranch.com to check it out. The Anger Point Podcast is also going to be brought to you by our premier coffee sponsor who is that you might ask well it is none other than hot shop brewery it's kick-ass coffee for a kick-ass cause and a portion of the proceeds will always go back to the wildland firefighter foundation which is awesome i'm stoked awesome organization and they're supporting them so yeah good coffee for a good cause. In addition to kick ass coffee for a kick ass cause, they make a full line of wildland firefighter themed apparel. So you can represent that wildland firefighter culture wherever you might be. They've got hats, stickers, they've got shirts, they got sweatshirts, they got it all. In addition to this, they have all the tools of the trade to get your morning started off right. What? Say what? Yeah. If you guys need a grinder or a pour over system or an AeroPress, press well they've got you covered in addition to that they help the anchor point podcast by slinging our merch so if you guys want to get your hands on one of those band of brothers tees some stickers or one of those super sweet fire fiend misfits themed t- uh <laughs> t-shirts then go over to www.hotshotbrewing.com and check them out And last but not least, the Anchor Point Podcast is going to be brought to you by the Smoky Generation, also known as the American Wildfire Experience. Bethany has an awesome organization over there, and she's pretty much made an archive, a digital archive of sorts, uh, of stories related to wildland firefighting across the world all in one location. They're dating even all the way back to the 1940s. There's a collection of over 100 of them and they're epic. So if you guys want a little trip down memory lane or if you guys want to see some uh, stories from the folks in the field that are telling the story of wildland fire, definitely go over to www.wildfireexperience.org and check them out. In addition to this, they're also giving back to the community. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you guys have heard about the Smoke Generation Grants. Well, good for you. They're coming back out online here probably uh, this winter. So you guys have an opportunity to win one of those $500 grants uh, for you folks in the field that are telling the story of a wildland fire. So if you happen to be a writer, a blogger, a photographer, a cinematographer, anybody who's telling the story of Wildland Firefighter. And now this is globally. So if you are in South Africa uh, South Africa, or Canada or Australia, you still have an opportunity to win one of these grants. It's pretty freaking sweet. So if you guys want to find out more, go over to www.wildland. Sorry, let me try that again. Go over to www.wildfireexperience.org and check them out. What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back. Welcome back to another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast. So today on the show, we are going to be talking about Australia. Oh, yeah. It's been one hell of a... Well, it was one hell of a season for those guys over uh, the 2019-2020 season. And uh, yeah, 13.5 million acres has burned in New South Wales alone. And now... We could take a lot of these lessons learned from what they experienced down there and apply them to our own home front here in the United States. And we're going to talk about that today with uh, one of our guests. Today on the show, we've got Mr. Daryl Luck. He is a veteran of the Australian Defense Forces, and he is also a RAFT firefighting crew member down in uh, New South Wales. So basically, RAFT is a remote area firefighting team. It's pretty much the, uh, I guess you could say it's the equivalent to a uh, initial attack helicopter platform but instead of uh, repelling or short hauling, they get to hoist in and out of fires. it's pretty cool. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce my good friend Daryl luck. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast. Today on the show, I've got my good friend from down under, down there in New South Wales. We've got Daryl Luck. What's going on, dude?
1: Hey, how's it going, Brandon?
0: Pretty good, man. Pretty good. So introduce yourself, man. Who are you? Who you work for? And I understand you got some military background as well.
1: Yeah, so oh, you've already introduced me. My name's Daryl. Uh, 17 years, Rural Fire Service down here in New South Wales, as a follow. Um... Ex-military, twenty years, and currently working for Lockheed Martin of all companies. Really down here, in, down here in Newcastle as a as a contractor. Nice man. What
0: do you do for those guys? Uh, can you talk about it? I know that Lockheed Martin they typically hire contractors, and you can't really say what you're doing.
1: No, oh, mate, I'm, I'm not doing any skunk work stuff. I'm just um, looking after the facility, a bit of logistics, a bit of procurement, that sort of stuff. Just nice. keeping it running.
0: Nice, man. That's awesome. So you've been in, uh, you've been in for a long time as far as the uh, RFS goes, the Rural Fire Service, which that's another acronym that we're probably not familiar with. And uh, you got the unique perspective from New South Wales. So explain the RFS. What is, what is that all about?
1: Uh, uh, it's primarily just a, a volunteer firefighting organization. Uh, management's all public servants, paid staff, and all your brigades and so forth for all volunteers uh approximately seventy thousand in the service across the state oh wow
0: that's a considerable number
1: yeah um that's that's on the books anyway so um yeah active that's another story but yeah 70,000 on the books
0: so what's the active thing now that is that like active actively volunteering I'm assuming or is that something different
1: um well your brigades that still had memberships the farm um, you know people turn out when they can people are in there for life a lot of guys and girls join when they're you know teenagers and they just become part of that brigade family and they just stay there and even they get to the point where they can't turn out but they'll come to the station and they'll they'll open doors and they'll you know they'll look after the station and that while crews are out yeah i got you you yeah so they all they still play a part but not necessarily everyone on the fire ground
0: I gotcha. So there's a lot of like logistical efforts that go in there. Uh, clerical stuff, uh, office work, cleaning up station, stocking, all that stuff.
1: Yeah. Organizing crew rotations, all that sort of stuff as well. Um, even getting the standpipe out and getting ready to top the truck back up when she comes back into the station. Just, just that little stuff. Oh, nice.
0: So it's, 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 it's basically like a community effort. It truly is a community effort down there.
1: Yeah. It all becomes, it's all just a big family. I mean, the brigades are are a family. They're a second family.
0: Oh yeah. And that I've been preaching that since day one, man. It's like this, the fire family, that is your second family, you know?
1: Yeah. yeah. I guess sometimes those priorities on who's second and who's first. sort of clashes a little bit, but
0: yeah. (laughs) Oh, there's always some like sort of elitism is like, yeah, I've been on the line. What do you do office worker? There's always going to be that kind of conflict,
1: I guess. Oh, or just even that prioritization of you know, kids' birthday party, or the pager goes off, and yeah, uh, yeah, which family do I do I stick with?
0: Yeah, no, I could totally understand. Like, you know, hey, you guys, this is an optional service. It's like not you don't have to be there. So, if I, I if it was up to me, I'd probably take the kids' birthday personally.
1: Yeah, I when you join, they sort of say, you know, family comes first, work second, brigade's third. So. You know, don't go to every fire call and put your job at risk or or your family relationship. So if you're available, you turn out. That's
0: pretty much how it works. So that's another curious thing too. Cause like, um, around here in the States, we wouldn't be caught dead being able to volunteer as frequently as you guys do. So how does that work with your job is usually kind of like a, like an unwritten code of ethics or is it actually like one of those things that's mandated by the state or the company that you guys are allowed to go out and volunteer and do these fires?
1: No, it's pretty much a, like a per company per person thing, whether they've got an agreement with their employer, um, whether they take time off. I mean, I use a lot of personal leave myself if I've got bigger jobs on, um, some companies, some of the bigger companies give emergency services leave. So they will actually give them so many days leave per year where they can actually do Now for bigger, bigger jobs, they can actually take time off, paid time off.
0: So you guys can get paid time off to go fight fire.
1: A lot of people can, some don't. And yeah, it just depends on the person. I am fair or small working for a small family business. Yeah. They probably can't afford that, but I may give them the time off and just be done with it.
0: Huh. That's, that's interesting. I've always been fascinated by the way the volunteer service works down there. And from what I understand, it's primarily a volunteer volunteer service, except for a few areas in uh, Australia, yeah, yeah, yeah. a few States.
1: Um, well, every state's got a volunteer service, but every, every state's also got their paid, paid service as well. They are uh, their career forayers. I gotcha. Okay.
0: Yeah. I'm sure we'll get back into that a little bit later when we kind of explain like the raft crews and specialized crews and all that stuff. But let's talk about your military experience and how that kind of primed you for fire.
1: Oh, I would probably have to say that military actually held me back from fire, if anything. Really? Just, um, yeah. As a, I mean, as a kid, as one of those, yeah, I want to be a fireman, but um, a scrawny runt. Didn't even think I'd, I'd make it as a fiery. Um, joined the air force instead and sort of started to get that interest of doing something. Once I moved into an area that had a, a local brigade but because of the work I did, there was lots of deployments and military exercises. So I couldn't give that commitment. So it sort of it just held me back. Yeah, you know, I, I can't dedicate time to these guys, so I'm not going to join up and just be a, a name on a book. So, um, so, you know, I didn't really join the service until a few years before I actually left the air force. So I was 34 when I did my first fire. Oh, really? Yeah.
0: That's awesome, man. Yeah, because usually it's uh you you get out of the military, you sign up here when you're 18 years old, and you know, you get out four years later or whatever you signed your commitment for, and then you go into fire. So as, it's it's kind of interesting. It's always it always fascinates me to see people that did uh fire or military and then fire so much later in their careers. And it's it's cool, man.
1: Yeah. Like I joined when I was 17, joined the Air Force at 17 and didn't know how long I was going to stay. And yeah, 20 years later, I was like... <laughs> nice, man. <laughs> was, would you retire out as? Uh, just a lowly corporal. I was, I was promoted at the time, but it was just, um, yeah, we'll promote you but we'll also post you out of area. So I got to that point of just um, you know, a bit of family stability. So it's time to step away. Yeah, it's hard to manage
0: uh, the military life or the fire life and have a family too. It's hard, man. It's a it's a serious balance that you got to have.
1: Yeah, it's probably rougher for you guys. I mean, the fourteen day rolls and all that sort of stuff.
0: Yeah, so I mean, that's another thing too. Is like, how did how explain that too? How do you guys fight your fires down there? As far as like your time commitments, it's not like you guys do the fourteen day rolls like up here.
1: No, not at all. No, uh, local incidents. Like if you've got a fire in your local area, don't. your brigade will run depending on the size of your brigade and the amount of trucks. They'll probably run 24 hours a day. They'll just, um, they'll run a tour eight to 12 hour shift and then come back. New crew will go on, go out, come back like that. So it's a constant and, rotation. Yeah. And neighboring brigades will do the same thing, but basically an eight to 12 hour shift and then you come back home and do whatever. Um, go to work the next day. You don't have to rock up and do another shift the next day. You're just available when you can, um, out of area. And usually depending on how far it is, three days to a week. So you might put your hand up to go away for a week and say two days of that's travel, three days of fighting fire. So, um, yeah. And they just rotate crews through just different, different rosters, different shifts. I got so, you.
0: Yeah, it's kind of cool. It's cool because you guys get more time at home, and you guys can go back to some semblance of a normal life. But also, I mean, it's it's got to be hard to manage that logistically to keep constantly rotating crews in and out, especially on a large incident.
1: Oh, absolutely. I I wouldn't fancy being the INTs in some jobs. Just yeah, you know, just scrambling for crews, and the longer they go on, the harder it is to you know, for people to keep stepping up because they're volunteers. you're know, taking time off work and away from the families, you start to make that sacrifice. Oh look, I've been out for a week. I can't go out again. You know, I've got to go do some work or I'm not going to have a job. So that's the thing. So, and then they have to start pulling resources from further out.
0: Yeah, man, that's, Mm -hmm. that's gotta be really insanely difficult to manage. So how does that structure even work though? I mean, like how it's like, you have your, your incident commander. I mean, there's going to be a ton of different lingo, uh, for your side of the world there um but how does that work like so run me through like a typical large incident like how does that work
1: uh, you still have your um your imt so you'll still have a um someone overseeing the whole lot you'll still have like an instant controller and then below them you'll have your aviation uh logistics safety planning operations so you still have that that um instant control system below that main instant controller um, bigger incidents, i will also bring in police. Um, if it's RFS job, you'll have fire and rescue, national parks if it's in their area. Um, State emergency service also help out. So they bring all the agencies in together, stick them in one spot. And yeah, it's just that, that incident control system comes into play.
0: So real, real to, similar to here as far as ICS goes.
1: Yeah, yeah, you've got, one person overseeing everything and then just a whole bunch of other controllers that run the chain down and just funnel back to the one person.
0: Oh, I got you. Okay, so it's it's practically the same thing, just with a different set of titles, essentially.
1: Should be, yeah. Okay.
0: Oh, that's crazy. And as far as like uh, other lingo, like there's a, I know that you guys call aircraft bombers and yep. uh, I forgot what you guys call uh, like bulldozers.
1: Um. Oh, it depends on the person, but dozers um just plant it's the same sort of stuff yeah
0: you call it a plant that's that's what it was a plant
1: yeah see gotcha. all your, all your heavy machinery yeah
0: okay and now what about like uh your engines your apparatus what do you guys call that
1: uh depends on on the type of the, um type of vehicle but mostly tankers say so not Not air tankers.
0: (laughs) Not to be confused with air tankers. I got you. That's it. No, it's crazy though. Like, uh, I mean, as far as like the topography down there too, um, I mean, it's, you guys have a lot of mountainous regions, especially in that Southern area. I mean, the wine country's up there. um, I'm not too familiar because I've never been to your neck of the woods in New South Wales. I've only been to Victoria, but explain that too. Like, what's it like in your neck of the woods?
1: Still pretty similar. I mean, we've got... It's fairly mountainous. It's not big mountains like you come across. Like so I've been to Utah and I look at those hills and just go, damn, they're big. But um, a lot of hills, and it's um, it's all covered with um, canopy, like tree canopy. There's not a lot of bare mountain sides just because we don't have that that cold climate. So it's not always under snow. It's evergreen forest. So there's always always a leafy foliage. Um, Coastal wise, we call it coastal heath. So that's a lot of tea tree and um just local sort of scrubby, shrubby stuff intermixed okay. with with mm-hmm. eucalypts and that sort of stuff. And yeah, as you go further west, then you start to get into all your eucalyptus forest. I gotcha.
0: Yeah, and that's what I'm kind of familiar with too, especially being down there in um uh Melbourne, is it looked exactly like San Diego. Like as far as like the foliage goes, um, it's like Southern California. And I kind of look at these Hills and look out into the, the fuel types. And like when I was cruising up the, uh, great coastal highway there and, uh, yeah, I was just like, how do you manage this? This is a nightmare as far as fuel loading goes.
1: Yeah. But, um, they do tend to drop a lot of fuel, um, which I guess is why, I mean, we don't have a lot of crews on the ground, like hand tool crews, which I guess we'll go into later, but, most of our work is all truck-based. So it's, um, yeah, pulling up on a fire trail or a road and just either burning back in or waiting for the fire to come out because you just can't get through that stuff. Um, there's no neat rows of, of pine trees and that. It's just a mess in there. Every tree is in there competing against each other and it's just, yeah, there's no straight lines. <laughs> Oh yeah, it's a, it's it's a, a literal jungle. <laughs> well, maybe not a jungle, but yeah,
0: it's it's pretty densely packed as far as uh, your 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 fuels go. It's crazy.
1: Yeah, it's been it's a bit thick. It's almost like running 100 meters in a 90 meter building. Sometimes it's sort of trying to. You get to a point you just cannot push through any further.
0: Yeah, man, it's it's crazy. But as far as like the crew, the crews go, uh, you guys have different specialty types of crews. And one uh, in particular that you're a part of is the raft crews. So the remote area fire teams that I do that, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So explain that. That's like your arduous firefighter. That's like your comparative to a like a hell attack crew uh, around here, right? Or a
1: repeller even. It's Yeah, it's a, it's a mixed bag. I guess that big difference is that we winch. We don't repel. We don't, we don't smoke jump. But, um, yeah, that's probably our biggest difference. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, okay. it's hard to explain really because all the people that do it are usually still brigade-based. So they do the brigade work and then they do this on top of that. So when a specialist job comes up, they call, and if they're not at work, or if they're not already working with their brigade on a job, then they'll put their hand up and say, yep, I can go. Okay. But it's um, small crews, usually about anywhere from two to four people. So no big 20-man shot crews. Um, yeah. Um, deployment methods are the same, hike, drive and walk, uh, boat, aircraft, whatever means possible to get to the fire ground. I got gotcha. you. Um, yeah, yeah. That, uh, still supportive, of like twenty four hours at least. So, so we hike with all that camp gear and all that sort of crap as well.
0: I got you. So, you, it, it's yeah, you're self sufficient for twenty four hours at a minimum, and you guys yeah. can go longer, right?
1: We can do. We don't don't usually because we don't usually get into a position where where we have to.
0: Totally understand. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. Cause I've seen some of your videos of like your, uh, training exercises and actual incidents, uh, on your Instagram there. And it looked pretty badass. It was cool looking. You guys get to fly in and winch and in, into fires. And, uh, it kind of, kind of raised the question in the back of my head. It's like, do you guys do other specialty missions like, uh, search and rescue or medevac or anything like that?
1: Yeah. With, with the training we've got, uh, we do uh, remote land search because we're self-sufficient. So, um, Police run the, um, like most of the, the land search components over here, but we can work in with them because we've got the gear, because we know how to remote navigate. So, um, yeah, we get involved with a lot of remote land search. Um, lightning strikes are our big thing, really, getting into those remote areas. Um, a, lot of, a lot of walk in the black. Um, there's, there's a new program where we're doing, we're starting up um, remote vertical access so that'll be um, abseiling into fires and stuff as well. You're going to be what? Abseiling. Abseiling. What is that? You know, rope around the waist over a cliff edge and oh, <laughs> repelling over cliffs. No shit. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you wouldn't You wouldn't catch me. <laughs> They're dead doing that. That's
1: crazy. So, yeah, so when that fire slops over the cliff edge, then it'll give us the ability to, to go chase. That's awesome, man. That's cool. Um, yeah, we've got um trail bike crews. There's um I've also got um aviation rescue crewmen now. So there's a bunch. It's not everyone, but there's a bunch of people now that do. Um, they were big last season. They were actually going out in aircraft, flying ahead of the fire, seeing if there's like checking on properties that were ahead of the fire or whatever, and you know winching people out or rescuing people that are in from the fire front. Um, they also do flood rescue. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a fairly diverse role for a volunteer. Yeah. about
0: to say, man, and usually, uh, you, would, you would see some specialized equipment like that in a full-time department around here, but to be a, a volunteer and do this stuff, that's wild. And because yeah. the amount of training that you guys need to do for this is it's got to be considerable.
1: Yeah, they do. They do months of training and, and they're I'm with the, um, the rescue crew and their three monthly recertifications as well. So
0: Oh, they have to get a recertification every three months. Yeah. That's one hell of a time commitment, especially on a volunteer basis. That, that is absolutely noble.
1: It's a, it's a big step up and you've got to have the time to put in for that one. So, um, it's sort of, it's a small crew. There's probably 20 odd at the moment.
0: Wow. That's, that's fascinating, man. That's crazy. So as, as far as like other states, um, this is all particular to, is it, is this just particular to, uh, New South Wales?
1: It is. Yeah.
0: Okay. Uh, um, as far as that goes, I mean, what do other, uh, states do?
1: Um, Victoria has got a small repel program. They've got a seasonal contract repel program, about 28, uh, repellers that work for, um, I think it's forest, like a forestry management. Crew down there, so that's that's pretty much all they've got down there. As you know, for a specialist sort of role, um, there's not a lot else at the moment. Um, Victoria, I don't know if they're going remote area. Uh, Queensland's very new into remote area; they've just started doing some training with our guys. Uh, Tasmania, further down south from Victoria, they just started getting into that remote area work, which. <laughs> We seem to do a lot of trips down there because we can do the job, but they they need a program like that pretty badly. That's that's some rugged country down there.
0: Yeah, it looked like it. I saw some a couple of the videos that you posted on Instagram there, and it looked like a another jungle. <laughs> it looks pretty gnarly down there.
1: It's a wilderness. It's it's dead set wilderness down there. You, you can get lost down there. There's probably dinosaurs down there no one's seen in a long time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, isn't it actually, didn't they find a uh, a species of uh, some sort of, I don't know, lizard or man, some sort of animal down there that they previously thought was extinct and then they spotted
1: it randomly down in Tasmania? Uh, they probably did, and it wouldn't be hard. There's so much land that you just cannot get into. It's just impenetrable forest. It's, it's just old. It's really old down there.
0: Oh yeah, man. Well, speaking of impenetrable forests, um, that's kind of one of the contributing factors to last fire season, the 2019, 2020 season. And, uh, yeah, I, I, the fuel type down there, I know that it spots for miles and miles or kilometers and kilometers away from the head uh, away from the you know fire front. And let's, let's, let's go over that. Like what happened last season? Was it just the perfect storm?
1: Was it lightning? W- what happened? It was it followed three years of drought. So there was a lot, a lot of dead fuel, a lot of sick trees. I mean the forests were dying. You could look at look at the forest and you'd know yourself, you look at a patch of where a fire's been through and you'll see like the brown, the brown trees and stuff. And that's what a lot of the forest is looking like. And it wasn't burnt, it was just dead. Like the trees were just dying. So everything was ready to burn. Um, A lot of it was lightning strikes, and they were just a lot of remote area lightning strikes, which with the amount of fires that were running, it was hard for them to manage every single fire straight away. So um, some got left for a little bit while focus was on others, whether they were because they were close to the urban interface or whatever, and yeah, stuff just, just had to wait for it to come out pretty much. So that was the big thing. It was just and fires joined up. They had a lot of nearby fires that joined up and just became became larger fires. So so
0: it kind of turned into like a, a few individual lightning strike fires and it turned into a, basically a conflagration.
1: Yeah, it was just, I mean, they, they called them megafires, some of them, but yeah, they just start in areas where you, you just couldn't get, get into them and they moved so fast because of the ground was so dry. They, they just um they got beaten really quick
0: yeah man it, and it looked like the perfect storm too because you guys had like you said three years of drought and then did you guys have some abnormal like uh like weather patterns as well that came through especially with the wind
1: um it was strange i mean the fire behavior did not match anything you'd ever expect you could have a really mild day you know low temperatures high humidity and you get a call to that and you'd think oh yeah we're not going to much you know be a small flame height. And fires were just ripping through. Like if you had a 100 degree Fahrenheit day with you know, super strong winds, they, would just, they just weren't behaving as as history ever sort of predicted and and proved. So yeah, man. Yeah, Some summer felt didn't feel as hot as what we've had in the past, but everything was ready to burn, and everything did just
0: kind of created that perfect storm and you were saying to um uh, after we reviewed that uh that document that you sent me uh the 70 takeaways those the 70 yeah. points uh that was you know given to the government as far as room of improvement but one of the striking points was just in new south wales alone there was 5.5 million hectares, acres and that translates to 13.5 million acres just in yeah. just in new south wales alone
1: yeah you know, that's insane and, and a lot of that was a lot of that was burning at the same time which was a big a big chest yeah
0: so you're strapped for resources you have this conflagration going on you have extreme conditions and everything's just lined up to be one of the ultimate fire seasons ever in recorded Australian history
1: yeah pretty much I mean, we get like we had Black Saturday, we've had Black Friday. There's lots of sort of big fire incidents get their own little name, but they actually called this one Black Summer.
0: Black and Summer. They just
1: blanketed the entire summer, yeah, an entire season. That's it. I mean, our fire season normally goes from like October to March. But um, the fires last season actually started in July and went through to March. So it was, it was pretty close to a whole year of fire.
0: <sighs> so it started early. It never ended pretty much.
1: No, no, it started up high on the border up between the border of New South Wales and Queensland and it just crept its way down. Um, Victoria started off a little bit slow. They had a fairly slow start to their season. They actually had crews coming up into New South Wales until they kicked off themselves. South Australia was the same. They had um sort of sporadic little bits and pieces, and then they had their big fires all pop up. But um yeah, it gradually just just worked its way down the, the east coast of the country and they just went nuts. Yeah. Basically went nuts.
0: So were there any uh, any particular states that were kind of disproportionately affected by these wildfires?
1: Um, no, I'd say New South Wales copped a good hammering. South Australia had a few fires where they had one on Kangaroo Island, which copped a lot of publicity because they've got a lot of wildlife population. And it... Yeah. It took out most of the island the fire there but um yeah everyone had a good fire season it just some started a little bit later on
0: i got you except for new south wales <laughs> except for new south wales which was on fire the entire summer
1: but Pretty
0: yeah man, you, you mentioned something about the uh the uh animals and there was something upwards of a billion animals that perished in this, all these fires across the uh yeah, that's-
1: continent yeah, that's the um the numbers they were coming out with, which is understandable. I mean, look, koalas aren't the quickest things on earth. Um, yeah, there's just nowhere for them to go when they're running from burnt area, getting out, but then coming back to no fuel. There's a lot of food competition, which is still going on out there. Um, yeah, it's just it's fast-moving fire and slow-moving animals. Oh,
0: that's tragic, man. That sucks, especially like the koalas, man. <laughs> they're pretty much stuck. You know, they're not, they're not, they're a very slow moving organism, like you're saying, but uh, yeah, it's, that sucks, man. And I, I, I there's a lot of endangered species as well that were affected by this as well.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, and I guess no one will know the, the uh, true impact on them for a while just because of their numbers. But um, yeah, there's a lot of relief programs for um, specifically for the wildlife. They oh, were doing food drops on national parks where in their aircraft and helicopters and that actually doing food drops into the bush to try and give them something to eat. But that comes at its own price as well because um, that sort of brings all the animals into one point where predators can, can have their way as well. So.
0: Yeah. And that's the thing too, is like, I've, I've seen that uh, as well. I've seen a couple of photos, like there's a couple of them out there where uh, people are dumping buckets of like carrots and yams out the door of a helicopter. And that made yep. like front page news of uh, a couple major publications over here, and that's the that's the thing that people don't really see uh, the long term consequences. They see fire and they think of the immediate, but what everybody fails to realize is the long term consequences of this stuff as well.
1: Yeah, and um, and going back out in the bush now, we're seeing uh, the slow recovery or even the the non recovery of a lot of areas. A lot of areas have burnt that hot. But Australia, Australian bush is meant to burn. That's the way a lot of it actually regenerates and propagates. But some of the fires have just gone through so hot that you know, just stuff hasn't recovered. Basically, so, uh, sterilized the landscape. Pretty much, yeah. Jesus, man. I mean,
0: as far as going back to like Black Saturday and Black Friday and all these other uh, major fire events that you guys have had, I mean, there's nothing comparable. To this, like, there's nothing that you guys had in your history that is comparable to this, and there was a lot of loss of life too.
1: Yeah, I think I mean, I think it was around 26, I think,
0: and that's just in New South Wales, right? Um, I
1: think that was across the board. I think, um, that'd be pretty close to that, but um, yeah, it's a big change from like the lessons we learned from Black Saturday where we lost hundreds of lives and so forth. I mean, the things that came out of that with the inquiries and the practices, they've all made a difference. It's up to now on how we prepare and how we notify people. So, um, yeah, I think those low numbers, I mean, they're big numbers, but they're lower numbers than what potentially could have happened. And that's just due to the warning systems and that they use now.
0: Yeah. Cause I understand that they actually do like radio broadcasts and, uh, cell phone notifications, all this stuff. They even do uh, like reverse 911 as well. Well, I, yeah, it's not 911 for
1: you guys, obviously. But. Yeah. Yeah. We've got um, mobile apps as well. And you can set up, um, you can set up zones, I guess, around where you are. So if anything pops up in your area, if there's a, a fire call pops up on the system, they will smash a button. Then it pops up on your phone to say there's a fire in your area, whether it's a, you know just a pile burn in someone's yard until they know what they've got and it'll pop up and it's um it's it's great and they have like an advice level and so forth to say hey hey there's something there you know just be aware it's there and then it gradually escalates to the to the point where it's an emergency warning it's like hey get the hell out sort of thing
0: yeah. Cause I, I listened to one of them. Uh, I think Justine's actually, she was a previous guest on the podcast, but she uh, sent me like a video of the audio uh, coming over the radio and it said basically, yeah, there's not enough people to help everybody evacuate. Do it now, do it early, get out of town or else you could possibly die.
1: Yeah, pretty much. And, and you'll get that, you know, it's too late to leave shelter in place sort of warning as well. <laughs>
0: I didn't somewhere. even hear about that one. So they'd be like, yeah, don't even move from your house. It's probably the safest place at this point. Warnings. Yeah. Yeah. Stay off the roads. Holy <laughs> you know? shit. Could you imagine, like, oh man, I couldn't imagine hearing that. It's like, yeah, don't go anywhere because you're probably going to die if you leave. <laughs>
1: yeah. And, and yeah, sometimes that's, that's the safest option. I mean, you know, as well, you're, you're trying to drive through roads that are blanketed in smoke and, it's just it's just carnage everyone's on the road at once
0: god man yeah it's crazy and i'm just looking at some of the stats that you uh sent me for new south wales and it's eleven thousand seven hundred seventy-four wildfires incidents individual incidents yeah. 26 lives lost with a 5.5 million hectares burned uh fire band days 59 so you can't have any open flame basically you can't even fart yeah. in the forest basically
1: Pretty
0: much. Yeah. uh, 2,476 homes destroyed. Wow, man. That's crazy. And the infrastructure losses, that's that's an incredible thing too. $899 million in loss. That's insane.
1: Yeah, it's pretty big.
0: God, man. So... The good news, I guess, the silver lining that came out of all of these things. I mean, it's not good, of course, but there was some more lessons learned, which brings up the topic of the seventy recommend seventy recommendations from the uh, New South Wales fire inquiry. So let's go over that.
1: Sure. Yeah. <laughs> oh, um, I have heard on the news today that the government is going to um to act on all of those recommendations that are in the in the inquiry. So I reckon they're gonna take on all of the um the recommendations.
0: So hundred percent of them they're gonna take seriously. That's what they've said. They're gonna actually
1: do what the um the inquiries have recommended. Yeah, because I Which, I, know. Uh, um, I looked I mean, I've, I've sort of glanced over some of them. I've I've looked further into ones that sort of I guess personally interest me. Um one of those was the um, the more rapid and prioritization of remote fires. So um and some of that also look like um you know, hitting those fires at night, which is something for remote fires we don't usually do, because there's an element of risk. There's no there's no backup because we there's very little to no nighttime fire flying anywhere at the moment. And it's still a, it's still a new thing. So um yeah, so that's a new one for us. We can as a raft team we can pre-deploy to a location. And we'll either camp that night and then we can get onto a fire first thing in the morning, or they're starting to look at, you know, going out in the afternoon, working through the night, and then coming out in the morning.
0: Trying to Um, get it while it's cool and humid out, trying to get, make it basically, basically make the most out of the weather at that point.
1: Yeah. Well, currently the way we work, um, for remote stuff, if we're working with aircraft is, um, like if we're actually flying into a location, is we start late because we get out to a spot in the morning, we have our briefings, have your aircraft safety briefings and winch briefings, and by the time stuff starts to get rolling, it's like 10 o'clock in the morning. And then by the time you get out on a fire ground, you're getting into like almost middle of the day. So you're starting to get up into where the temperatures are, it's hotter, hotter time during the day. And then your your time frame before you have to come out before dark is you just got that small window of opportunity to actually do some good
0: yeah it doesn't seem like uh if if you guys were to be able to if you guys didn't have to do all this stuff or you were able to do it earlier in the morning it seems like you could take advantage of those shoulder um burn periods you know like the evening and the uh early morning as well so that's one thing that came up in one of these recommendations as well also i noticed that um there's going to be what was that recommendation six uh training initiatives to increase the capacity of fire authorities uh, to fight the kind of mega fire scene in the 2019, 2020 se- season. And it's going through a list there and it's saying there's going to be more, uh, availability for, I guess what you'd say interagency on our side, but I guess, uh, interstate firefighting, uh, f- abilities on your side. That seems like a brilliant
1: plan. Yeah. I guess whether that just means that it's easier to get those resources underway and a bit less red tape maybe. But, um, yeah, I mean, we, we tend to, this season, we, we did get the other states in fairly quick because they, we were draining our own people really quick as well. I mean, there was a lot of crew rotations going out of area. Well, we caught out of areas if we leave our own district. I got so, you. Um, you're leaving your local area and going somewhere for a week and they were just going in and districts were just getting constant requests, you know, We need strike teams. We need strike teams, which is just multi-vehicle crews going up. And, yeah, they called in. We had had crews from New Zealand were here running on our trucks. Um, Victoria was here for a while. There were Tasmanians, Queensland. So everyone was coming in until they started to get a bit busy themselves. But, um, yeah, so maybe that's just a a bit less red tape to um, actually get on the phone and say, hey, can we have some people?
0: I gotcha. And now was there anything out of those 70 recommendations to, uh, maybe fund like a full time and not rely so heavily on the volunteer service, maybe hire some sort of, uh, like hand crews or anything like that. But you basically said that, you know, cutting hand lines pretty much ineffective down there. But is there anything that came about regarding that?
1: Um, I didn't notice any, I don't think we could go away from the volunteer, um, the way we work down here, I, I think it'd just be so expensive to maintain. I think what they've got, I just being able to provide the equipment. And they, they probably need to provide more equipment, especially in those further out, you know, remote locations, you know, more trucks and that sort of stuff. But um yeah, I think it would just be super expensive to even try and maintain something of a comparable size.
0: I gotcha. Um yeah, it just it just, it's, it's, it's gotta be a total pain to manage that. And like we talked about earlier to just the logistical effort alone to round up, uh, you know, all these volunteers, which do a lot of work, you know, you guys are the primary firefighting force. They just, I don't know. It's just, uh, I don't know. If, all right. Let's say it this way. If you were king for the day, what would you say? As in seen paid versus volunteer. Just any solutions that can make this whole situation not happen again.
1: I don't think you could could not make it happen again. There's um, there's a lot of talk at the moment about cultural burning. So you know, the traditional landowners and the way they used to manage the land, you know, before colonization for us, I guess. So um, they're looking into that again. So how that how that works now? With such a big urban interface as compared to a couple of hundred years ago will be interesting. I, from my own perspective, I see that's sort of a, it may work out in remote areas, but around the urban interface, which is where all the, the focus seems to be, because you've got life and property to worry about. That's a bit, that's an interesting one, but um king for the day. Jeez, you go nuts. <laughs> um yeah. You just got to just got to deal with it when it comes up. I mean, you can plan all you want, but until something actually happens, I just don't think you can you can plan for it. Especially after last season, I mean, is that the trend now? I mean, is that going to be? I've no idea what this season's going to be. I mean, so much was burnt, but there's so much unburnt. So, um, yeah, sort of. I'm just watching and waiting at the moment to see what happens this season.
0: Oh, man, are they predicting a pretty, uh, heavy season? I mean, granted, there's not as much, as much fuel to burn, but the places that haven't burned, you know, the, are they still drought stricken? I mean, is it, is it looking not promising?
1: Not, not so much drought stricken, but that dead fuel from the last four or five years is still sitting on the ground and it's, it's still prone to burn. I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, we've burned a lot of, a lot of land, but there's a lot. There's more that didn't burn than did. So, um, yeah, it's just the fire in the wrong spot. It's going to take off, but it just depend on the weather. I've heard mixed, mixed reviews on how the season's going to be temperature-wise. I've heard it's going to be another hot one. I've heard there's going to be you know, cooler temperatures and more rain, but I'm just going to have to wait and see.
0: Yeah, I mean, you could. It's basically throwing a dart at a map and hoping it lands on the good section. You know, that's. It's one of those things, man. You can always, everybody wants to predict like a fire season, but everybody's always wrong at the end of the day. It just, what happens happens. Uh, that's pretty much how it goes.
1: Yeah. We, uh, the last few years, it always going, oh, it's going to be a bad season. Yeah. The weather's going to be right. And that's a normal season or even less. And then last year just tipped everything on its head pretty much. Yeah.
0: That's insane, man. Yeah, it's it's just crazy though, because um, from what I understand is you guys don't really have the opportunity to do like controlled burns, uh, prescribed fires.
1: No, we do. And we've just started yesterday as a big day. There's hazard reductions going or controlled burns.
0: Gotcha. Going
1: up and down the coast at the moment because the weather's good. But um, a lot of the issues were just the weather. The weather wasn't right. It was either you've had rain previously and it wasn't going to burn or it was just too hot and the conditions weren't right to put fire to ground. Um, There was also some public outcry because of the amount of smoke going into major population areas and complaining about that air quality stuff.
0: Yeah. And that's kind of like the drawback too, is cause the, I mean, typically the public's going to complain about the smoke in the air, the air quality, but I mean, it's, it's one of those things where I kind of want to try and change that dynamic. And that's worldwide, by the way. Is, hey, if you accept this tiny bit of smoke, this regulated kind of smoke where it's going to be controlled, it's going to be a hell of a lot better than in, you know, August or for your instance, you know, December, uh, than having these massive brush fires everywhere, just inundating entire continents essentially <laughs> with smoke.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a tricky one to manage. I mean, the public cry out that there's too much smoke and poor air quality and you've got your asthmatics and that. So the politicians react to that. Then the fire services need to burn to to control bigger events and yeah, someone's got to give.
0: Yeah. And it's typically the public that's gonna, (laughs) that's gonna uh, win that battle. That's typically what it is over here at least.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's, I don't think there's any difference really, but, um, The attitudes may change after last season. Let's hope. uh, Yeah. But at the moment, yeah, there's, there's quite a few fires running up and down the coast at the moment. People are making the most of it. So
0: just kind of trying to get that opportunity and take advantage of it while you can.
1: Yeah. Yeah. They've really, really ramped up, especially this weekend. Yeah.
0: That's another thing too, though, is like managing that at scale. It's, it's an impossible task no matter where you go. It's managing uh, that amount of land. It's hard. It's, it's, you can't just start dragging a drip torch and putting fire on the ground all willy nilly. You have to do it at a very precise moment, like you were saying. And to scale that up, that's next to an impossible task
1: yeah and um and we leave a lot of it to um to landowners as well like even like national parks are responsible for managing their lands and state forests and then the government so um individual land managers have their responsibility for their own their own patch of dirt and then the risk assessments that go on top of that is just like an encyclopedia you see the you see the paperwork that needs to go just to put fire on the ground and they set a date and then if that date changes for weather reasons or whatever, it's just start again and you've just got to replan it Mm. So, um, because when you, you're you're committing all these forces, especially with the volunteers and and, you get, you've got all these assets ready to go on a day and then everything turns to poo, whether it rains at night or it just doesn't want to burn like the humidity is too high and you just can't get fire to run no matter how much you put on the ground. So you just have to put it out and try again another day, but whether that next that another day ever comes whether it's you just don't get that opportunity so
0: yeah man and that's the tragic thing too is like that the bureaucracy of this whole thing I mean yeah it exists for a reason but it, it could be streamlined and I, from my understand is uh there was quite a, a bit of uh angry uh, citizens over there in, at the uh, at the prime minister over there from last year's reaction to the wildland fires and uh yeah w- w- what's your thoughts on that?
1: Um, I think it was just, it was people who were, they were frustrated, they were tired, they were just, they were angry. And he gave them the opportunity early on as a, as a focal point, And they just, they just gave him hell. Um, but I, mean, when he, when he came back from holidays, he, um, <laughs> he, he did all right. He, he did some bad PR stuff and, um, and everyone let him know about it, but it was a big job. So um that's not a job I want, that's for sure. I wouldn't I wouldn't fancy wearing his hat. But um yeah, he was just he was the target. Like I said, he, he opened that opportunity where he was overseas on holidays when the fires started and the public found out and just and public outcry sort of pretty much brought him back. And yeah, it was just he was just a, a big red target. <laughs> so.
0: Yeah, man, I'd hate to have that bullseye painted on my back. Especially in a time yeah, of crisis.
1: Yeah, I mean, people want to vent, and they're going to vent it. At, at, at the leadership, I guess. So.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's understandably so too.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, he didn't—he didn't want us out there sleeping on the forest floors, though, so I guess that's one thing. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, I mean,
0: we—it's. We, we encounter the same issues over here too. I mean, you know, it's, like I said, man, it's it's a truly uh, un, unfathomable job. When you look at the amount of acres that are out there of public lands, the amount of interface that you have, It, it it's an impossible job at the end of the day.
1: Yeah. Okay. And like we said, we fight fire differently, but I guess, similarly to you guys. I mean, like I said, we're all truck based most of our people aren't arduous but um, none of our, our brigades have to be arduous they can be I and mean, you can have a, a crew made up with four people and those four people could be anywhere from 16 years old to 80. I mean depending on where you are and that's that's the way it is and it's only our specialist guys like the remote area guys which are the rural fire service has our raft crews but also the national parks here have the raft crew as well i have raft crews so they we work side by side with them a lot because there's a lot of national park but um so they do the same work as us with um remote lightning strikes walking the black <laughs> but um we it's primarily our our big job is just fires gone through just to go in there ground truth it put out all the hot spots make sure it's not going to bust out so we we walk a lot of fire edge but, um, yeah, so I mean, a lot of a lot of people, like I said, they're not arduous. They they don't go beyond the, um, the hose lengths in the truck. I got you. As opposed to you guys, you I mean you throw hundreds of guys and girls out on foot, just up the mountains you go. going to dig me a, a big ass line and then put fire on the ground and stop that bloody fire. It's,
0: that's a different way of doing business too. And you know, it's and to be completely honest with you, that tactic is not gonna work down there, just with the fuel types. I mean, you can put all the hand line you want in around a eucalyptus forest or pretty much anything and around spots. there.
1: It's just it's gonna spot
0: over. It's not gonna work.
1: Yeah. And you can't dig straight line here. You just you just cannot dig a straight line. Oh no. I get jealous. I see, I see the hand crews there and it, it looks like really fertile, you know, nice soft soil that some of those crews are chopping in and I, I kill for some of that stuff.
0: <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Then, you know, I mean, it's just hard. Yeah. It's, it's, I love I, that's one thing that also pissed me off about the people over here uh, is I, I, every day when this was going on during the winter for us, you'd see, People were like, "Oh, just send the hotshot crews over there, show them how it's done." I'm like, "Whoa, whoa, 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 hold on! Have you ever fought fire in Australia? Do you know the topography? Do you know the rules? Do you know the regulations? Do you know the fuel types? What do you know about that?" So the armchair quarterbacking thing. Oh man, oh, <laughs> it pissed me off.
1: and uh, that happens. I mean, we look at some of your guys and think, yeah, "Why the hell have you got people on the ground?" I mean, because to us, um, putting our crews on the ground, almost unsupported in, in a way, and a lot of the times unsupported. You know, we do a lot of our work with an aircraft asset for bucketing, but there's a lot of work that we do where it's just people with garden tools and we just buddy walk a fire edge with nothing. And there's a there's a big risk. I mean, over here, trees are our biggest factor, like falling trees and branches. Um, the eucalypts, a lot of them are shallow-rooted, And then once they get a bit of stress and a bit of wind and they, they come down, which is a factor in some of the firefighter deaths that we had here last season was just trees just dropping everywhere.
0: Yeah. Those tree strikes, man.
1: And and yeah, when we go out, you can always, it's constant. You can just hear trees dropping everywhere. And we the crew as if on one fire, we had a new miss during last season. So that um, sort of really brought it home, and it's changed my attitude on some of the risk assessments I do. Because um, while you're moving, it's not too bad, but if we stop in one spot and focus on working, whether it's a fallen tree or whatever, that period of time that we're still is a period, uh, is an amount of time that a tree can drop, which, and did like thirty seconds after we walked away from the spot that if if we'd been waiting for another bucket drop or some of that and just standing there. So it's made me think now that if we're going to stop and focus, that I'm going to do a walk around, I'm going to do a 360 walk around, especially uphill of where we are and check all the other trees that are around us to see if they're burning down low on that uphill side, just to, just to do a physical check. Cause yeah, you just don't know.
0: Oh yeah, man. That's the thing too. Is like you can account for, you can try to account for every risk that's out there, but at the end of the day, I mean, you can't, you can't account for every one of them. The risk never goes down to zero ever.
1: No. And that's it. And you put boots on the ground. No, no you guys. You, your guys, your shock crews and your hand, your hand crews. It's just, yeah, that's a big risk.
0: Oh yeah, man. Oh yeah. Well, that's good though. I mean, these guys, you guys have all the same tools that we do and everything like that. I mean, you guys get to go and fall hazard trees if they're a threat to you guys. And that's just part of mitigating the risk. You just have to do it.
1: Yeah, so, um, I guess. I guess one thing I didn't cover is um, and I guess I've always thought about it, is you have a you have a rank structure within your like your shot crews and your hand crews and that. As far as I can see, I mean you've got your your crew boss and that, and then you also have like your your saw bosses and so forth. And it seems it seems very regimented. You know, whether it's a like, like a almost a military sort of. Oh, no, it's a relationships. I don't know. crew boss's boss. This is what's going on. You know, this is where we're doing this, and it's it's very different to the way we run our hand crew. Um, we doesn't matter. Like the hand crews are all like you could have captains in there, like brigade captains, or you could have just you know you your normal lowly firefighter. But there's no boss. We don't really? have. We have no boss. Everyone has a say in what goes on. Um, And if if we put someone in charge, they're pretty much just in charge of running the radio. So um, you're in charge today, so, yeah, you get to talk to fire control. But but that could be, you know, the the advanced firefighter who's running the show, but there could be two brigade captains and a a crew leader in the crew as well. But it just doesn't matter. We, um, We ignore rank.
0: That's wild. Yeah. Usually it's, it's, I mean, it's pretty militaristic over here. Um, I mean, we do, we're not, we're getting away from the, uh, salty attitude of, you know, shut up and dig and do as you're told. So, I mean, it is militaristic in a, in a sense that, you know, you have a chain of command and everything like that. But if, even if the, the first year rookie on a crew sees something wrong, he'll pass that message and say what's wrong. So it's a little bit different. Uh, there still is, uh, quite a bit of rigidity as far as the leadership structure goes over here. Uh but it's it's pretty cool to see, hear that uh on down there in New South Wales. It's different, you know, it's uh everybody's pretty well experienced as well. But also to have not a rigid structure, that's that's different. It's it's cool.
1: That, I mean that's only in the in the remote area world. Like brigade wise they still have had that structure where you've got a crew leader who's in charge of your truck and so forth. <laughs> but for remote area, yeah, because everyone has the the same basic entry-level qualification. So everyone's got fire experience up to a level. Everyone knows how to navigate and how to do whatever. So um, it doesn't matter who runs the show. Um, Everyone gets in and does a job. If you're working on something, um, you don't leave it unless everyone's happy with it. So, like, if you you finish cutting up this fallen tree and, Someone goes, oh yeah, that's good. Let's move on. If someone's not happy with it, then we don't go until everyone's happy.
0: I gotcha. And you guys don't have to have any specialized uh, qualifications for like running a saw or anything, do you?
1: Yeah, still, still have chainsaw qualifications. We have um, basic crosscut, so for you know, trimming fallen trees and so forth. Then we've got um, intermediate tree felling, which is um, supposed to be for non-fire affected trees. It's a it's a hard sort of one to manage whether your class, like, you know, the burnt bark, is that a fire-affected tree compared to something that's burning up through the middle? But And then you've got um, fire-line tree fellers, which are your, your technical tree fellers. So, um, yeah, we do have those, those three levels of, of chainsaw. Hmm.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and yeah, that stuff takes years and years of practice and to dedicate that amount of time to your craft on a volunteer basis. Like I said, man, that is
1: one hell of a noble cause. Uh, that's good. That's, that's good just to do something. I you know, give that's that old catchphrase. Yeah. you know, giving something back to the community, but you feel good doing it and being ex-military, it's sort of, it's, it's in my blood, I guess. It's in a I'm used to the teamwork and yeah, you know, just being part of a crew sort
0: of thing. Yeah, I totally understand. Yeah, so that's one thing too. Um, that I kind of wanted to bring up as well is uh, how the U.S. and in, uh, the U.S. and Australia can learn from each other, like the lessons learned off of each other. The way we do business over here, the way you guys do business down there, we can learn a lot off of each other. I mean, how come we're not doing that more often?
1: Oh, I- it's hard to tell. I mean, I don't know what the uh, the upper levels are doing between each other. I mean, there's probably a lot of talk between you know, those higher echelon levels of, you know, like Cal Fire and New South Wales at the moment where they're looking at moving IMT members across. I mean, they're probably learning a lot in that higher level fire management side of it. But um, the boots on the ground, yeah, it's it just doesn't happen. And, I mean, I think... The hotshots going down to Victoria last year were probably a good thing and it's something that hopefully someone down there has had a look at and gone, you know, hell, you know, look at the work these guys have done because they don't have those specialist hand crews like that. So hopefully someone will look at that and go, oh you know, shit, these guys and girls did a great job. You know, maybe we should look at sort of something similar for our own, our own resources. I mean, they had work for them to do so. Obviously they had work for their own people to do as well. Um, and uh, and back the other way, I mean, we just don't get to, to go over there too much as boots on the ground. And we had remote area guys go over and go, sorry, guys and girls, I'm stereotyping, sorry. <laughs> remote area firefighters go over there uh year before last, I think it was. But they went over there and they filled spots like um, plant supervisors and so forth. Okay. They weren't they weren't cutting line. They weren't you know riding around in engines, that sort of stuff. So they weren't doing traditional firefighting as we normally do. So we're not sort of passing on that, that practical experience, I guess.
0: Yeah. That's one thing too, is I just wish that we could have more. We, I w- they used to have an exchange program to where you guys can come up here. We can go down there and uh, learn off of each other. And we'd help assist you with your season, which is our off season and vice versa. And I wish
1: they would bring that back. Yeah, it'd be good. I mean, and again, it's hard for a volunteer to commit an amount, a worthwhile amount of time. Like the um, the overseas deployments that we normally get when they come up on offer to go to the US are like six weeks, and that's a that's a big time off work for someone if they're um if they're employed at the time, and um and at the moment the guys that are going over. They're going over, they're coming back. They've got to do two weeks hotel quarantine when they come back.
0: Yeah. The coronavirus is definitely throwing a wrench in that gear.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm not sure about yourselves, but anyone coming back into the country, no matter if you're a citizen or not, mandatory two weeks hotel quarantine, they take you straight from the plane, put you on a bus, drive to a hotel and you sit in that room for two weeks. And they may test them and then... Once you've been tested a couple of times, then you can go home. So
0: God, that's gotta be killing the tourism industry down there.
1: Oh yeah, it's it's hurting a bit.
0: Well, then again, it kind of has its little benefits for the citizenry there down there. Uh you don't have to deal with a bunch of asshole tourists all the time.
1: (laughs) I just gotta deal with ourselves.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yo, man. But yeah, that's uh yeah, it's one of those things that I wish that I could, we could see more of is that exchange program and, you know, helping each other out. Because there's a lot of lessons to be learned from, you know, both our fire season, your fire season. And I'm pretty sure we could, you know, create something really genuinely good for both countries.
1: I think so too. And I mean, the tools, I mean, a very pistol down here. I mean, hell, I mean... It's just not a thing or a fusee. We don't even use fusees. I mean, it's just drip torches or nothing. So, um, to be able to stand on a fire line and just arms out and just like, can shoot an incendiary off into the bush and just be letting, I mean, apart from it'd be cool, but it would save a hell of a lot of walking that's for sure.
0: Oh yeah. Well, it's good too. It's it's good for building depth and heat, interior heat.
1: Yeah. Cause we'll, um, um, we we'll run, hand through to, um, torches but we have to actually you know walk into the bush and put a line in there and then come back out a bit and put another line so just uh yeah. so that each fire from the edge runs into a, a burn patch and just to keep that intensity down until it's further in where your crews can just stand there and just lob around off you know a few hundred feet into the bush and yep she's in <laughs>
0: very pistols are pretty cool have you seen the uh there's there's a large format one that um who is that is a fire quick puts out and it's basically it looks like a like a service rifle like an m16 or ar-15 but it's made to where it fires uh five five six blanks but there's like seriously a huge ass flare coming out of the end of that thing it looks like a uh like a t-shirt launcher attached like you go to a sports game and they shoot the t-shirts into the crowd yeah, it kind of looks like that attached to an AR-15 that shoots gigantic freaking flares. It's pretty cool.
1: Uh, yes, that'd, that'd be one way of doing it. That sounds pretty cool.
0: <laughs> it's a little aggressive, but you know it serves its purpose in certain fuel types.
1: And it's and it's cheaper than a helicopter dropping incendiaries.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. You cut down on that flight that flight time and the risk of flight time too.
1: Yeah, so I mean, so it has its benefits, but um, it's I just I can never see it happening over here, but it's just. And that's tools you guys use, and if people went over there and had a look and, you know, physically saw it and actually got to do it and go, yeah, well, this shit works, you know, it's something we should look at or variations of. So, I mean, yeah, it's sort of learning off your guys and watching Instagram. I know mean, I, I live on Instagram a fair bit now and talking to some of the different crews and they go, oh, you know, just had to dig a line in a rock garden, and it's like, it's every day for us. <laughs> if you're kind of used to that one. If my Pulaski or Reiko isn't hitting a rock at least every second I hit, then there's something wrong. <laughs> so it's, you
0: have to look around to see if you're actually like in the right spot. It's like, wait a second here. <laughs>
1: Something's not right. There is no right spot. A lot of the times, like a lot of the hills out from where we are out West, it's just, just rock, light shrub and then your trees and yeah, you can't cut straight line. Jeez, man! Yeah, it's
0: definitely is, different tactics. That's for sure.
1: Yeah, um, and blowers. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure how much blowers are getting used over there now, but they're fairly solid over here now. They're a, they're almost a staple.
0: Yeah, they use a lot of leaf blowers over on the east east coast, especially in those uh, those hardwood forests, where there's like a lot of oak trees and stuff like that. They'll use a lot of leaf blowers, and I, I think they uh, use them down in uh, the southern rough as well to get fires started as well to do prescribed fire. So they'll take a leaf yep. blower out there, start lighting stuff and build some, build some heat with that, uh, leaf blower.
1: Yeah, they, they definitely do, um, spark up a fire if you, um, if you want to if feeding a lot of air into it.
0: Oh yeah. and It's off to the races. Well, that's that's cool, man. And uh, yeah, it's just kind of wild to see what happened and see uh, what it's like from an Australian uh, wildland firefighter's perspective, especially with the face of adversity that you guys had last year. It's like, holy shit.
1: Yeah, yeah, some crews got absolutely smashed last year. And I mean, just the physical and mental toll, a lot of those brigades, especially if the fires are in their own area, they're just working you know, day after day, I mean, protecting their own properties, their own their own communities, and some of those fires went for months, so they were just out there constantly. And it just um, that was another recommendation from the inquiry was um to um to look into and improve the the mental health support that was available for the firefighters and the public. So I mean, they took that into consideration as well. But yeah, it took a big big toll on a lot of people.
0: Oh yeah, man, and showing up to that—that's, yeah, you're seeing hundreds of homes burned potentially in certain areas. I mean, if it's, especially if it's right up against the Wui, the uh, urban interface there, yeah, and that—that's and kind of cool because we we don't really look at it that way. We always protect like the protector here. As far as um, mental health services goes for the first responder, we, for the most part, maybe not so much the wildland side, but the uh, municipal side of things, they do a really good job of, uh, you know, resiliency and adhering to uh, or addressing their mental health concerns over there on that side. But we never really look at the public side. Like these people have just lost everything and we don't even bat an eye at it, which sucks. It's not like a government mandate or anything like that. So it's cool to see. It's refreshing to see a government looking into the mental health of these people that have lost their homes. They've potentially have lost everything.
1: Yeah. Well, even even just the stress of having to evacuate. I mean, from a, from a personal side, I mean, we've had a couple of times where we are now where I've been on a fire and I've jumped on the phone and said, you know, Hey, you might as well pack up and bug out for a while just to play it safe. And you can see that has a an impact just on the family. I mean, nothing happened from it. They went they went out and the fire stopped before him, but there was still that stress and the panic. So it's it's still post-traumatic, I guess. I mean, I've had my daughter say to us a couple of times, you know, do we have to pack up? I mean, so it still plays in our head that, you know, that they're running around madly and, you know, trying to get what you can together and get the hell out and, you come home to a house and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, the stress is oh, from, from losing a house and losing family to, you know, just uncertainty and just panic, I guess. So it affects everyone.
0: Oh yeah. And that, that's one thing I've never experienced. I've never had to evacuate a home or anything like that. I've had to evacuate people. And you, like you said, you hit that nail on the head, seeing the look on their face when things get real and saying, Hey, you guys need to go. that's, I don't like having to do that, but I've had to do it in the past, and it sucks. I can't imagine what they're going
1: through. No, and and every time it happens, I'm usually on a fire truck enjoying myself. (laughs) So, and they go, "Oh, how's it going? Oh, yeah, it's going good. It's going good." And then like an old lady ringing up, "Yeah, you might just take those bags and you know go to a friend's place for a while or something like that." Yeah. Yeah. So that's Chinese whispers. Chinese whispers, but he. Social media and Facebook, and that there's a lot of like community pages, and just the wrong information gets out there, and it just creates panic, unnecessary panic a lot of the time.
0: Oh, yeah, Uh, which adds to that stress. Well, that's the thing, too, is like we we entered in like when I was growing up, we were in the information age, right? And now it seems that we've kind of gotten into the age of disinformation, which is even more you know terrifying because you don't even know what to believe anymore.
1: No, no, it's just crazy. I mean, even the media streams that you used to rely on, you, you just don't know how stuff's manipulated or edited. So.
0: Yeah, it's, it's uh, definitely, a, <laughs> there's some interesting things going on, uh, especially over here <laughs> worldwide, of course, but especially over here. But yeah, we'll see what happens. Um, hopefully it turns out for the better.
1: Yeah. And, and we're about to go down your road now with um, coronavirus and fire season. So yeah, we it, skipped it. We went from fire season to coronavirus and you guys have gone the other way and gone corona into fire season and and changed the way your guys look at running larger incidents. Oh, yeah. And that's, poten- that's potentially what we've got to do now coming into our fire season is only a couple of weeks away now. So whether we learn lessons from what's happened over there, I'm not sure of it. But-
0: yeah, it's it's definitely interesting. It's uh it's changed the game and it's really exposed a lot of holes in our, our safety net, I guess you could say, um, especially uh, <laughs> logistically. You know, I mean, transporting these crews across country and from one hot zone into a potentially not hot zone. That's a scary thought, especially for the people that live in those communities. I mean, I couldn't imagine. I mean, it's. Is it a polarizing issue? Yeah, it is. But is there only a limited number of resources to go around? Yes. So it's how much willing, how much risk are you willing to accept?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I've seen a lot of improvements over there as well, I and mean, people are loving the way they're they're working now, and you know, being self supportive. And I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of those crews stay that way now. Oh yeah. You see crews running around with their own mobile kitchens and stuff. I mean, it's just it's amazing.
0: Oh yeah. And it's uh what was this? It was um uh, Wyoming Hotshots. They outfitted an entire mobile kitchen, like you're saying, and it's kept them out of fire camp, which is arguably a hotbed for coronavirus. If there was, you know, one or two people that were infected and they were, you know, pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic, they don't know if they have it or not. So that's a potential, uh, hot zone for spreading this virus, especially. Yeah. The fire even,
1: yeah cause even just normal, um, fire camp buddy hygiene. It's just, it's the same over here. You know, you've got your little isolated tents where all the people with the trots are and buddy. So, yeah, those, those portal lose copper flogging.
0: <laughs> oh man yeah it's hygiene's pretty much non-existent in fire camp and that's just what it is it's i wish we could change it but there's no real logical way to do it
1: no no and you you can't rely on you know hotels motels everywhere you go either
0: <laughs> nope sure can't well yeah i mean it's crazy and uh yeah it So we're getting to the end of the show and uh, I just want to say thank you for kind of, you know, explaining what happened and how kind of things work down there in uh, New South Wales. But yeah, it's uh, definitely eye-opening and uh, some of these lessons learned. I hope we can, you know, interact with each other more, especially the Australian Fire Service or you guys and, you know, over here get that exchange program getting going again and yeah, get a better relationship or strengthen a relationship. We already have a good relationship. It's just strengthening it more
1: yeah it'd be it'd be nice to see it sort of expanded i guess beyond california right so, yeah that's it, always um california we did go to, to canada and all that so but yeah maybe some of those
0: oh those yeah but Well states we'll see what happens but yeah well anyways so we're at the end of the show and uh where can we find you
1: um most of the time on instagram on my own page um, rfs lucky i uh, also run the uh our remote area instagram page which is um Lower remote area Flight Team. that's just lh remote area flight Team. that's probably the best place to find me okay
0: yeah i'll definitely put those uh links in the show notes so we can get a hold of you and uh yeah what do you got coming else now you're coming down the road uh for later
1: uh, a lot of training. We're, um, we're training a whole bunch of new um, remote area people at the moment. So we've, um, we've just gone through a lot of their practical side and a lot of um, navigation, day and night navigation, the old map and compass. But that's fullback. That. Get them away from the GPSs and, you, know, you just practice for in case, you know, you drop your GPS on a burning fire or something like that. But um, those assessments are all coming up soon. And, yeah, no, fire season's knocking on the door at the moment.
0: Yeah, man. I hope everything goes well for you guys. It's, uh, yeah, especially let's, let's pray that we don't have a season like we did last year down there.
1: Just make sure you finish up your aircraft so they can come down
0: here. <laughs> <laughs> Get some more tankers down there. Some air tankers.
1: That's it.
0: Yeah. So at the end of the show, I give, uh, I always like to give the opportunity to have you give a shout out to a homie, a hero, a mentor. Who do you got for us?
1: I reckon I've got a couple for you, Um, a couple of them uh, from over your side of the ditch. Um, Joy, at the moment, she's a a Utah uh, firefighter paramedic. She's on her very first type 4 wildfire role at the moment, a 14-day stint, and she's um, merrily driving between Idaho and Utah at the moment on severity, looking for fire and not finding it at the moment. So um, fingers crossed for her that she actually gets to find some wildfire for the first time um another one from utah's scott haney is a former arrowhead hot shot yeah he, um, he got a bit soft and he's gone to the structure side over there now <laughs> but he's um he's found himself a love in um so he's got a new girl heidi and they're getting married over there soon so i won't be able to get over there and enjoy that thanks to rona but i just want to wish them all the best and um i guess just one of the local ones just um alice she's a local girl here in the, in the brigade she's um kicking goals and just doing great stuff. She's got a, a big career ahead of her. So yeah, just wish her all the best. Nice.
0: Well, right on, man. Well, Daryl, I just want to say thank you so much for being on the show and yeah, hopefully we we'll get you on here
1: again. That'd uh, be awesome, mate. Thanks, sir. Thanks for the invite.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, man. Take care.
1: You too, mate. Have some Vegemite for me. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I like Vegemite. But
0: <laughs> not a lot of people do, but I, I, I dig it.
1: Spread it, theme, mate. That's the secret. (laughs) (laughs) I'll keep that in mind. All right, man. Take care. See you, mate. All
0: right, guys, there we go. Another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast is in the books with our good friend, Daryl Luck, all the way from New South Wales. Daryl, thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, sharing some of your insider experience and your expertise in the field. And uh, yeah, thank you for sharing those 70 uh, recommendations that were made to the uh, New South Wales Australian government. Man, that's uh, pretty heavy stuff. Yeah, and uh, 13.5 million acres in one state in Australia alone is quite a big number and uh yeah hopefully we could learn some lessons from this and we can apply some of these lessons learned down there to not only the future of the new south wales uh firefighting forces but also ours as well so once again daryl thank you so much uh that raft team sounds pretty damn cool kind of envious not gonna lie anyways i hope everybody's doing well um Yeah, and uh, be safe out there, guys. Uh, I know this has been a hard month, and uh, yeah, just uh, continue to keep your heads on a swivel, be safe, and honor those uh, that have come before you in the wild and firefighting service. Special shout-out to our sponsors. We got Hotshot Brewery, purveyors of the finest damn coffee in the world. We got Mystery Ranch, purveyors of the best-built packs in existence, the finest load-bearing essentials in existence we've got the ass movement spreading the word of burying your turds we've got manscaped arguably one of the best men's grooming tools out there and last but not least we've got the smoky generation bethany you got a kick-ass organization going on over there keep it up and for the rest of you guys um if you guys want to donate to any of these relief funds um you can always go over to the wildland firefighter foundation Throw them a donation. You can always go over to the Eric Marsh Wildland Firefighter Foundation. And you can also go to my website at www.anchorpointpodcast.com. And you can also see a uh, ton of GoFundMes listed on the page. Uh, A lot of these firefighters have lost everything. And they need your help. So, uh, yeah, go over there. Spread the word. Let's get these guys and girls back on their feet again. uh, Yeah, these people have pretty much lost everything while defending the public lands that they are sworn to protect. So with that being said, go over there, donate, make a difference. And for the rest of you, stay safe, stay savage. Peace. We'll catch you on the next one.